We are coming off perhaps the most beautiful weekend in November in the history of Ohio, but it did seem that the sky got a little bit bluer late morning Saturday. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with a full house of our regulars, Chris Ranowski, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston. I can't imagine you all did not enjoy this weekend. It was wonderful. (laughs) I went out twice on the paddleboard, raked some leaves, just sat outside. Paddleboarding in November, clearly a sign of climate change. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we went down to the valley and, and just, you know, walked through the beautiful forest. It was really nice. Yeah, I, it, this was just glorious. And we got another one today, and it'll still be warm tomorrow, but it's going to rain. Can we then... have the day off, please? <laughs> yeah, I wish. Well, let's begin. The streak is over. So how long was Ohio the bellwether in presidential elections until last Tuesday? Jane Cahoon, this was a remarkable record, and it's over. It is over. So with President Donald Trump's decisive Ohio victory and Joe Biden's overall victory, that makes Biden the first candidate to win a presidential election without also winning Ohio since John Kennedy in 1960. So that's 60 years ago. Uh, so that 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 ends our streak. Uh, before this, we had helped deliver nine presidents to the White House in 14 different elections, you know, switching between Republicans and Democrats like no other state. Florida was next uh, closest in picking the winner, but they're they're done, too, as is Iowa, who had done so like four straight times. So, um, you know, not only that, it's the the past two elections with Trump have have also pretty much spelled the end of Ohio being a competitive presidential battleground as well. So, I mean, he's got two consecutive eight-point victory margins in Ohio. And, I mean, just to give you an idea of the contrast, how things have changed, before that, no one presidential candidate had received more than 51.5% of the vote since 1988 in Ohio. And that uh, that was the year that uh, George H.W. Bush trounced Mike Dukakis by like 109 percentage points. But in, in the four elections, the, these figures are courtesy of Rich Exner, by the way, who, who uh, always has an interesting take on this. He, in the four elections from 2000 through 2012, two of those were won by George W. Bush and two by Barack Obama, just 144,818 votes separated the two parties out of more than 25.5 million votes cast. So here we are. We've got every um, statewide executive office controlled by Republicans as well in Ohio. Uh, So um, we're we're turning red. We had two. You know, we had Sherrod win by a big margin two years ago, Sherrod Brown, the senator. And then we had one Supreme Court justice get in. But I don't think people recognize what the parties are. So you can't really read into that. Right. We're no longer a swing state. I mean, what blows me away is Ohio had picked every president for my entire lifetime until Tuesday. <laughs> and that's I'm old. So I'm, I'm it's just it's a striking thing. I've gotten some pushback from people that we did that story. And then we had Biden on the front page of the paper winning, saying, you don't get the call. And it's like, OK, you're being preposterous. I am a bit stunned that two of our leading Republican statewide officials, Mike DeWine and Rob Portman, have not congratulated Biden on his victory. It's almost cowardice anymore. I mean, why won't you stand up and do the right thing? The election's over. 
all of this nonsense that's being buzzed about the fraud. It's completely been disproven. And yet those guys don't say a word. What does that mean for leadership in Ohio? When are they up for re-election? <laughs> Both of them are up years. in two years. Um, see, okay, there, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, especially Mike DeWine, who really preached a lot before this election about, you know, how we're going to, you know, I'm a Trump guy, but we're going to abide by the results. Um, Portman, I think, is totally characteristic here. He he never comes out until a bunch of other people come out. Yeah, he, like this. Portman has a spine problem. We've talked about it before. I'm surprised that DeWine, I'm wondering where the Mike DeWine of March and April has gone. I mean, here was a guy who owned the state, had huge approval ratings, decisive, doing the right thing. And then all of a sudden he's gone. I mean, other governors are doing some cool things to try and battle the coronavirus. We're doing nothing and we just keep racing upwards and he won't even congratulate the president elect. It's, it's just mind boggling that we're we're in a state that has that kind of leadership. Anybody? Yeah, I, I mean, it is it is kind of telling that I think we're what now, like the 12th most infected state in the country. And, you know, we're still sort of taking this sitting on our hands approach to to dealing with anything. And, you know, you you go around. I, Laura and I were talking about this before the podcast started. You know, you go around and you see restaurants are packed. We're, we're underestimating whether or not that's a problem. And and. You know, we still don't have data that shows where stuff is coming from. I, I mean, we we have really sort of taken a backseat on a nation on a national scale um, as a state when it comes to dealing with this. When we were really at the front end of this, really one of the only GOP led states that really attacked this with any any sort of vigor and seriousness. Let's go there because it was coming up later, but we're already into it. We set unthinkable records for daily coronavirus cases Friday and Saturday, and on Sunday we crossed a new threshold for total cases. Jane, before we get into more of the discussion about why we're here, what are the numbers? Well, we crossed the 5,000 mark in, in daily new cases, and as you said, we set two more records, 5,008 on Friday and 5,549 on Saturday. It's like we're 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 jumping up by 500 cases each day. We're we're getting five times the number of daily cases that we got just a month ago. And a month ago it was high. And then um, sadly on Sunday we reached a quarter of a million total cases in Ohio. Even with those lags, you know, in reporting over the weekend, we still had like 4,500 daily cases on Sunday too. Um, we got a record number of people occupying hospital beds, you know, over 2000 as of last week. So it's, and grim. although we don't have a capacity problem yet, you're starting to see capacity problems in other States. And it's by no means certain we will not get to a point where the hospitals can't take people in. Laura Johnston. Oh, I was just going to say before that. Yeah. And this is when um, the governor had asked us to come together and, and be as a state to attack this problem. And we just, Seem to just be watching it. Just keep climbing. And well, I read in New York they're doing something cool. They're they're doing a micro approach. So if they detect the coronavirus starting to break out in a in a in a small neighborhood, that becomes their red zone. They shut it down, and then the neighborhoods right on the edge of that become their yellow zone with some restrictions, but not the shutdown. And they they say this is starting to stop the spread of the virus. So that's cool, right? I mean, you see other governors and other cities doing things to try and prevent this, but our health departments in Ohio are so lame, I bet they couldn't spot 
a micro breakout. But, you know, and if they have that data, they certainly keep it secret. We get the lamest reporting from the Cuyahoga Health Department and some of the other county health departments. Imagine what you could do if you could spot a micro breakout and deal with it quickly. Right. And this has big effects because you just mentioned New York. Well, New York won't let Ohioans in unless we like stay and get our tests for three days. They've changed it now so you can get a test after three days and then quarantine a little bit more and then get another test. But this is, a you know, the rest of the world is now pointing to Ohio as a problem. And we at the beginning were kind of like a guiding light that, look, we're managing it here. I mean, we're becoming an embarrassment. I know we miss Amy Acton. Maybe she'll become part of Biden's cabinet and and bring her coronavirus approach to the nation (laughs) and it'll bleed back into Ohio and we'll reduce what we're having. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How close is Ohio to getting some big dollars from the drug companies that caused the opioid crisis? Chris Ranowski, this is a story that we were talking about a lot before March and almost not at all since. But this thing is still out there. The big lawsuit that was going to take place in Cleveland. It looks like it might be coming to a close without going to trial. Right. So this is kind of the the pandemic that we lost sight of, I think, during all of the coronavirus pandemic talk. But four of the nation's largest pharmaceutical companies are prepared to pay $26 billion to settle lawsuits with communities and states across the country over the devastation brought on by prescription painkillers. Ohio Attorney General David Yost said that he's happy with the proposed settlement that his office helped negotiate, though he said the amount the state would receive is yet to be determined. Um, and he said it could take months to be finalized. There, If people don't remember, there are thousands of lawsuits that were brought by various cities, counties, and tribal lands, and and other municipal government entities across the country, all basically centralized here at a court in Cleveland under U.S. District Judge Dan Polster, who, a side note, is actually known for encouraging people to settle lawsuits. And we were supposed to have some what they call bellwether trials here. The first trials, there was a settlement before those took place. And then there were supposed to be some additional trials this year that kept getting delayed because I assume it was because they were you know, making serious uh, headway on, on reaching a settlement like this. So, so we'll see. I mean, it, it, like again, what Ohio ends up with is, is yet to be known, but, um, but this does look like it's moving sort of in the, in the direction of a settlement. It'll be interesting to look at how Ohio spreads that around by community and then compare it to what Cuyahoga and Summit counties got by reaching their own settlement in the test version of the case. My right. bet is that Cuyahoga and Summit will have been, will be way ahead of where they would have been if they relied on Ohio to distribute the money. And if Ohio does what it normally does, it won't give it to the cities. It'll right. give it to the rural areas and the cities will once again get jammed by Columbus. That's the other thing is that, you know, what happens after this is the sort of the unfortunate political aspect of it, which is, is, you know, you're going to have it funneled through one, you know, so, <laughs> so one person down, you know, trickle down to all these other communities that are, that have spent hundreds, if not millions of dollars trying to address this problem. So, you know, what's fascinating is Dave Chappelle actually hosted Saturday Night Live uh, over the weekend. And he talked about living in Ohio and living around people who are addicted to heroin. And it, and it really, it kind of brought it back into focus, at least like, you know, because I mean, we've written about it extensively, but it's just, you know, with the coronavirus, it's something that we forget is out there. 
and we forget that it has been worsened by the fact that people are stuck at home or job, you know, losing their jobs. And, and so this problem hasn't gone, gone away. And I hope, I hope it gets the attention it deserves. Good points. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How badly has Cleveland's tourism industry been hit by the coronavirus pandemic? Laura Johnston, our travel and tourism writer, Susan Glazer, took a deep look at just how bad it is, and it's pretty bad. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's really hurting the uh, tourism industry. Business is slowly increasing. It remains far from where it was 12 months ago. There was a report commissioned by Destination Cleveland, our tourism bureau here, said it could take years before the economy improves to where it was in 2019. There's some numbers from the Ohio Travel Association, $11 billion in visitor spending since March lost. And that's a huge chunk of tax revenue as well. In 2019, Cleveland attracted 19.6 million visitors. That was a record high. That was the ninth consecutive year that visitation had grown. And um, and at a rate faster than the rest of the country. And this year, we're looking at maybe half of that. And honestly, that sounds optimistic. This is affecting all sorts of sectors, the hotels, a car, car services, chefs, restaurants, the convention and business travel industry, as well as the airport. I mean, it's it's far reaching. You know, we've tried to get a read from what happened in the 1918 pandemic to to bring it forward to how this might go away. Uh, and you really can't because in 1918, you did not have anywhere near the modes of transportation we have or the way conventions gather. I mean, it's a, it's just such a different world. So it's hard to tell how long it will take for this to come back. I think everyone will be wary of gatherings for a while because it's just being drummed into your head. Stay away from strangers. Stay away from strangers unless you're Notre Dame fans rushing the field. But but I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting. One of their fears in Susan's story is that this won't come back for quite some time. And that's probably a good likelihood. Yeah. I, Susan talked to one woman who is a she was the executive pastry chef at the convention center downtown. And she's she's out of work and she has her kids home from school. So she can't just get any regular job. So she fears She's saying, you know, are 3,000 person conferences going to happen again? Are, and do they need high end French pastries? And you're right. When everybody is meeting by Zoom, they're not even going to their offices. When is everybody going to like spend the money to travel to a conference and spend big money on food again? I, I it's, it's hard to see. And I guess Cleveland has about 70,000 jobs tied to this industry. And they think out of the 500 hotel employees that are in Cleveland, only 20% are working full-time. So not only is this a long-range problem, this is a far-reaching problem where the majority of people are without their jobs. Yeah, and the other thing is, do people really want to go back into the mode of getting all dressed up the way they have to? <laughs> They're just sitting at home in their pajamas. <laughs> we'll see. Hard you're, listening, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is dementia playing a role in a challenge taking place on Ohio's death row? Chris Warnowski, the people on death row are getting older and older because we've slowed the pace of executions. And now we're seeing the problems of aging start to creep into the decisions on whether to execute them. John Caniglia did a fascinating story on a case that's going on right now. Tell us about it. Right. Aging is a huge problem in prisons, just in general. It makes, I mean, we spend a lot of money treating these, these people who are in prison for life. But this was a very sort of different and very unique kind of thing that is is just starting to sort of pop up in legal circles. There is a gentleman by the name of James Frazier who is on death row, who is 
he has uh, vascular dementia and he is his attorneys are trying to basically get him off the list for executions because they say he he's not competent. He doesn't understand anything and he, he can't understand why the state wants to execute him. And he has no recollection of killing uh, a woman by the name of Mary Stevenson in Toledo back in 2004. And this is really the first time one of the first times in Ohio that lawyers have, have used the issue of dementia in pleadings to ask judges to bring an execution to a halt. So uh, we don't know yet as to, uh, you know, what will happen in this case, but it could set a, a fairly in- interesting precedent, uh, depending on how the judges on, on this uh, decide it. You know, as I read this story, the question in my mind, and it was answered once you got a little bit into it, but the question on my mind is, is he faking it? Is this a dodge that people can use to get out of being executed? In this case, the doctors seem pretty, pretty sure this guy really does have dementia. I mean, he doesn't seem to have anything. But if you open the door here, does that open the door to everybody on death row starting to pretend to wig out and have dementia? So dementia is not as easy to fake as you think it might be. I mean, it's, 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 it's some, I, no, I mean, it's some, I mean, I have, I have experience with dealing with people who, who have dementia and, and, you know, it's, you, you, there's some pretty telltale signs. There are tests they can do. I mean, it's not going to stop people from trying, but I don't think it's going to, it's not going to lead to a wave of success for people who are trying this. So, you know, it's look, People in prison, you know, we see it all the time. They always write either their handwritten filings in courts where they they are, you know, they have access to law books and they're they're trying to find their a, a way to get out of jail. And and there are some creative people who who really sort of try to bend the bend you know reality toward their favor in trying to get released from jail. But it rarely it, it doesn't work that often. And so. You know, it, it, I don't think it's going to stop people. But like I said, I don't think it's going to lead to a lot of successful, you know, again, it's another fascinating case related to the, the death penalty. And Ohio's at the forefront of it. So here we are. Yeah. And although it's a little bit moot, because as long as Mike DeWine is governor, I don't think he's going to sign a death warrant. He seems to take glee in not doing it. It violates his religious beliefs. Anyway, good stuff. Read it on Cleveland.com. It's a story by John Caniglia. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is there any clarity about whether forced air heating systems spread the coronavirus and whether concrete steps are available to stop it? Laura Johnson, I want to talk about this story in part because there's so much misinformation about this out there. After our story published, I started hearing from people claiming to be experts and others worried that there's scamming going on. When we first started looking into this, when you look at forced air systems, Uh, You don't get scientific studies. You don't get a lot of uh, useful, independent information. You get a lot of people trying to sell you crap that they say will make your system safer. So this is a kind of a scary moment. There is some evidence that the coronavirus can pass through and get spread around by an HVAC system. And then there's all these companies claiming they have the answer for stopping it. And we really don't have clarity, do we? No, I would say there's not not like a step three step process to make your house safe from the coronavirus. It that's not out there. What is seems clear is that ventilation is very important when it comes to stopping the spread of the coronavirus. And as some of you guys reminded me last week, I think it was that um, Mike DeWine even brought on HVAC specialists onto his briefing at one point to talk about, you know, duct work and, you know, so 
back in 1918, it seemed pretty simple when we had the influenza pandemic of 1918 that people were supposed to open their windows and they had radiator steam heat. And so they they said fresh air was the cure. Well, it's not as simple as just opening your windows for this winter. Um, and Cameron Fields talked to some HVAC specialists who did put forward some ideas about filters and UV lights. But you're right. It's not like here's this one product that's going to solve all your problems. Well, I, you know, I did some research on this myself and I could not find any study that showed it. Yeah, there is a form of UV light that kills the virus. They're, they're using it on RTA buses. They use it in hospitals. But to design a system where as the air is flowing through that it spends enough time to actually get killed by it, it's not clear. And until there's some studies done, you're really kind of on your own. You know, the, the idea of using a HEPA filter well, that's questionable, too, because if the system's not designed for it, you could just you know, destroy your air handler because you're clogging it up. Anyway, Cameron's story had a lot of voices in it. But the, the thing that I, I did want to kind of point out here is it's not clear. <laughs> it's And it's kind of scary that it's not clear. You would think that by now tests would have been done to see if the virus is being spread by heating systems as we come into winter. You said we can't open our windows. Last couple of days we could. Well, You're listening. <laughs> oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to add one more thing. He's also done a story on air purifiers, which people have been buying for smaller rooms. And that doesn't sound like a fix for an entire house. But the experts say that you can put an air purifier in one room uh, as long as you're running it at like the max capacity and it covers the square footage. That should help keep the air a little bit. The problem with HVAC is the big buildings. Right. It's not, you know, if you're in your house and nobody in your house has it, it's not spreading the virus. True. But if you're in the Walmart and there's a big air handler and there are people in there that have it spewing out of their mouth, it could be spreading. And we, we just don't have an answer. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. On Election Day, in how many counties did Donald Trump take at least 80 percent of the vote? Jane Coon, this was a bit surprising that that he's so overwhelmingly popular in some of the rural parts of the state. What were the numbers? The numbers were eight counties uh, gave him 80 percent of the vote or more. That was led by Holmes, Putnam and Mercer. And then also in there were Adams, Dark, Noble, Shelby and Ogles counties. Uh, overall, he won 81 of the 88 counties, uh, leaving mostly the urban counties. Uh, um, so there's Cuyahoga, Franklin, Hamilton, Lucas, Montgomery, and Summit, but also Athens, a kind of historically liberal place. That that Those were the only ones in the Biden column. And Trump carried at least 60% of the vote in 71 counties, including 46 counties where he had at least 70% of the vote. So uh, it, you're right. It's pretty support was really running strong in those areas. The divide between Ohio's urban and rural centers seems like it could not possibly get bigger. We just the people in the cities are, are it's just polar opposites of the people in the rural areas. And of course, the people in the rural areas are overlords in the legislature. So that's why <laughs> the cities fare so poorly. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We did some work to get a better understanding of why voter turnout was so low in Cleveland on Election Day. Chris Ranowski, what did we find? 
Well, Kevin Conwell, councilman for Cleveland, actually went door to door and talked to people and ahead of the election, encouraging them to vote. And and what he found was that joblessness, inadequate education and racism really sort of led to a lot of voter apathy within the city of Cleveland. And and so I uh, like like most of Cuyahoga County, Clevelanders favored Joe Biden over Donald Trump. But despite those visits, it really did not create a lot of excitement around their campaign. You know, Cleveland had a 53% turnout compared to the 68% in the county overall. And so, you know, really the the suburban voters are what sort of, of came out and sort of a, a wave and, and voted. But but poverty and racism really are sort of playing a, a major role here. We, 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 we have to sort of address these things. And, and really what I think the city is sort of lacking is, is a, a lot of, of good organizing. I think you look at places like Atlanta and, and places like, you know, other major cities where they have a huge, a huge, huge effort to sort of push people to get out to vote. And you just really, you really didn't see it here. And, and it's, it's interesting because you can kind of draw a through line to things like all of these police protests and, and the things that we've sort of dealt with, with our police department. It, we don't, we don't really ever see kind of the turnout that we see in, in other cities. And I think, I think part of it is, is is there is a kind of overriding sense of hopelessness among a lot of people who live in the city. Well, let me ask you this, though, because across the nation, a lot of people have credited the vote of black women for for part of Biden winning. Mm-hmm. And because of Kamala Harris being you know, the first woman vice president, first person of color as vice president. You would have thought that that might have inspired some people in Cleveland. Is it is it just because we don't have a Grande Marcia Fudge was pretty much invisible throughout this, didn't didn't use her position, you know, the way Stephanie Tubbs Jones and Lou Stokes did to rally the vote? Is it just we lack we lack leadership to get out the vote? Yeah, I don't think we have. I mean, who who can you point to that would be our Stacey Abrams or our our really enthusiastic Democratic mayor who is out there? deeply involved in, in the campaigns. I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of sad, but also it's kind of, it's understandable. You know, I mean, I think, I think a lot of black citizens feel betrayed by this system and don't engage in it. And rightfully so. I think there's an understanding that their lives will not change much for the better uh, under Joe Biden. And, and, and honestly, I think this is the, this is, this will be the election where we'll see you know, whether or not the Democrats can sort of make good on these long promises that they've made to black communities, because we've, you know, we've seen them time and time again, come, come, you know, rushing to them when it's election time. But, you know, we still have things like poor health outcomes, you know, disparate pay for black people compared to white people. You know, there's, there's a lot that I think that, that, you know, the black community needs to see, before they're going to trust somebody. And, you know, and again, Hello, there's, but, also, there's also a historic mistrust of Joe Biden because but of Cleveland was an outlier. I mean, in other cities that that didn't happen. I mean, there was something about Cleveland that that depressed the vote, didn't depress well, it in, I just, I don't think we, in Detroit. I, I don't think we have a young, enthusiastic le- Democratic leadership here. I really no, don't. And, don't. And I think that it comes down to that. I think I, I you know, I mean, who I. I mean, look at look at how few people went out and celebrated the Joe Biden victory. I, you know, I mean, other cities turned up. People were out in the streets dancing. And here it was it was very minimal. You know, we drove around kind of looking for it to see if if 
if it, it was happening and it, and it really wasn't. I mean, you no. saw some people come out in Tremont for a little bit and that was about it. And But we also live in a state that didn't vote for him. So that might have been a damper as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Columnist Leila Tassi published a Cleveland Schools video on our website, cleveland.com, on Friday. Laura Johnston, why should people watch this? Because if you need some inspiration, this is where to go. It is a beautiful dance that eight members of the uh, Cleveland School of the Arts dance program performed individually in their own homes, this choreographed piece, and they put them together in a video. Um, And it's really moving and we only we got it because CEO Eric, um, of the schools, Eric Gordon, had seen it and talked to Layla about it and said he was inspired. So we are able, with their permission, to share it to everyone who might need to see some of this grit and this work by students to really kind of lift us out of this COVID fatigue. It is staggeringly beautiful. I mean, I when when Layla sent me the link before we published it, I was watching it. My wife was was watching with me. She was tearing up. I mean, it's to see these kids standing in their bedrooms, standing in their living rooms, practicing their dance moves, trying to get it done in the middle of the pandemic. It's inspiring. Uh, and like you said, if you need a lift, go watch this video. It's on our website. It's really quite well done. So thanks to Eric Gordon for sharing it with us and getting the permission to allow us to uh, put it on the website. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, guys, good podcast, good uh, discussion as usual. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back on Tuesday.